tonight we are going to look at something. We're really shifting gears right here. Uh, and I may have to do this in two messages. Revelation 17 is a, I just debated on how to do this, um, is, a, is such a huge uh, issue in the chapter. When you maybe you just read it for the first time, you're like, what? You know, you can see some things in there, but you might not see what the connection is. Well, Revelation 17 is a controversial chapter. And it's one of the hard, and I'm not the only, alone in saying this, it's sometimes one of the hardest chapter to peg down as far as, okay, what is it talking about? And I'll just say, probably, um, a, there's, there's quite a, there's a number of verses in Revelation that I don't think anybody has down because in the process of time, it becomes more clear. C.I. Schofield, who was a, he wrote a Schofield Bible 100 years ago, he even said, and he, he understood a lot. He goes, you know, as time progresses, people will understand the book of Revelation more. It's basically what he said, and it's true. But I think that what we will see in Revelation 17, you'll start to get the gist of what this is. Again, a lot of what you see is a future thing in Revelation 17, but the thing in that chapter, I think, is in existence right now. That being this whore. This Babylon, I think, is in existence now. It's just going to be um, expanded more in the future. So anyways, this is a tough chapter. Whenever you read the Bible, at least as a Bible teacher, you try to do three things. You have to, you have to peg down three things to, to kind of complete the deal. What does it really say? Like, read the Bible before you preach it. What does it mean, and how does it apply? And I took time getting, working it in, what it says, what it says, and what it means has been a lot of labor. And how it applies is also because I'm trying to figure out how, okay, here we are, I'm taking the church through this prophetic passage of Scripture, got some symbolism. What's the pastoral points here we can give you tonight that's more of a help me now thing? And I'm going to do my best on that tonight. It's a little harder to do that, but I'm going to do my best on that tonight. So Revelation 17, before we start reading it, it's a chapter It shows some images, some of the images you've already seen of a seven-headed beast and of uh, with ten horns and kind of a ferocious type thing that symbolizes uh, some world powers and the beast symbolizes the Antichrist. But we introduced to another character called Harlot, the mother Harlot also called Mystery Babylon, and she's riding on this beast. And John's learning about this, watching, and he gets some of his questions answered, not all of them. So this is patiently read this tonight, Revelation 17, and then we'll try to start unpacking it. <clears throat> Here we go, Revelation 17, verses 1 through 18. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment, of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand 
full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. That admiration doesn't mean like, I like you admiration. It's, he's just amazed. He's struck by it. Verse 7. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her which hath the seven heads and ten horns. <clears throat> the beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not in the written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not even... He is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's where you get King's kids' name, by the way, kids, right from that verse. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill His will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. <clears throat> the, this passage of Scripture, as I said, is very controversial. We put on our, um, the title of it for our Facebook Veed, who is this chick? <laughs> Just trying to get a little bit of somebody to pay attention here to this. Um, I don't even know where to begin. There's so many different angles here. You see here a woman, you see a harlot. <clears throat> uh, a harlot's never respectable. Some places they're trying to, maybe some small places they try to make it respectable. But it's almost never respectable to be a harlot. Um, at least among God's people, Right. right. Among the right people, it's not respectable to be a prostitute. What is a har harlot, prostitute, whore? Synonymous words. What is a harlot? What is a prostitute? What is a whore? It's a woman who sells her body for sexual activity. 
In other words, she'll do basically anything to get some money, even sell her body for sexual use. She will compromise herself morally to get gain. She'll do anything to get gain, even if it means compromising her body. That's a prostitute. That's a whore. Sometimes we use that word in a, another way, maybe not applied to actual sexual activity with a woman. We'll say, you know, that person has prostituted their business, or they prostituted their convictions, they prostituted their church. Unfortunately, this is the symbolism here tonight. Um, I was going to show a few pictures, but I'm like, i got to be careful about that one. Um, Let's back up a little bit and just think of the context here. Um, The end of chapter 16, we went through some of these final judgments, vile judgments on the earth. Severe. Adam mentioned one of them again today in Sunday school. And at the end... The last judgment that happened, it says in chapter 16, verse 18, and there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the wrath of the fierceness, the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. You see here a destruction of Babylon at the end of chapter 16. The angel comes, verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1, the angel comes, one of the angels that had the vials, and he comes over to John and says, let me show you something, kind of as a side, let me show you something. In other words, okay, stop. We, one of the last things was the destruction of this Babylon. Well, this, well, in this case, what does it say? The city was divided into three parts. So Babylon is shook up, verse, chapter 16, verse 19. And the Bible says God has this fierceness of wrath. And so as if it's in chapter 17, the angel pulls John and says, let me just, as a side, let's explain this. Why such fierce wrath? Why is God showing such fierce wrath on the earth? And then it mentions a specific city, Babylon. Why such fierce wrath? And so John here is about to show us this, um, or John is about to be shown this thing called Babylon, who's also called a harlot, a whore. I should say, not Babylon, uh, Mystery Babylon is the name, the great. Listen, the Bible has, do do you ever notice here in Revelation, there's like the devil's thing, God's thing, the Antichrist, the devil slash Antichrist, both of them working together. They have their thing. God has his thing. Um, the devil has his Christ, Antichrist. It's, it's, we're not making this up. It's just right there in the Bible. The Lord shows his Christ, the lamb. Antichrist is very mm, me. The lamb is meek. The devil has his, um, his government. That's going gonna, gonna to be kind of like a one-world government. The Lord's going to have His eternal government. The devil's going to have his city. There's going to be an actual city, ba- Babylon, Mystery Babylon, that people are going to be gravitating around for its economic benefits. And the Lord's going to have His city. There's a city mentioned in here too, Heavenly Jerusalem. So these, these parallel thoughts, uh, or co- contrasting thoughts throughout the book, there's more. 
There's also two different women. Actually, let me just quickly say, there's four women. There's Jezebel mentioned. It's a literal person in the book of, in the church of Thyatira. She was not helpful to the men. Then there's this woman called, uh, we would identify as Israel. She's clothed with the sun, has 12 stars about her head. She's standing on the moon. It's symbolizing Israel as a nation and vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. There's that woman. So there's those two women. But then it's like right at the end of the book, you see clearly two distinct female personalities. Now, when I say women, it's not an actual independent individual women. It's called a woman who symbolizes a greater thing. There's, who's the good one? Who's the pleasant one? In the next few chapters, we'll learn about. The bride of Christ, the lamb's wife. It's very clear there. We're not like finding some weird thing in scripture and making some more of it than it ought to be. It's the bride, the, the bride of Christ. Who is that? Us. It's us. You know, the, the, that is, I believe it's anybody saved after Jesus came is part of the bride. Okay, that's, how, that's kind of my take on it. Anybody gets saved, they're part of the bride. And so he's going to collect her. He's going to prepare a place for her. And her place is even called, look, the bride, even her, her house is called the bride. And a beautiful place is going to be. So, and we'll have a marriage supper of the Lamb, I believe, that's going to take place uh, during the tribulation. I think it's going to happen at that time while... Things are going on down low. We're going to have the marriage supper. But there's Jesus' bride, Jesus and his bride. And now we see another personality. You have another woman, not a bride, a whore. And the beast is associated with her. Antichrist has his whore. And so does the world if we're going to stay with all the words of Scripture. Jesus has his bride. And often in, in, in prophetic scripture, listen to this, I'm trying to help us because I, I don't want to just tell you, I'm trying to give you reasons to, to accept what I'm saying as an interpretation, I'm trying to give you Bible reasons. Often when a woman is mentioned in scripture in the context of a prophet saying something like using a woman as a sample, it's usually in a religious sense, in the idea of worship and fidelity to God or infidelity to God. So when, again, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, some of those prophets, when they say, Israel was like a, and he'll use a symbolism of a woman, you know, that was been forsaken and God took her and cared for her and all this. Usually the idea of a woman used symbolically in Scripture, it has the idea of trying to convey the idea of worship and fidelity or infidelity. So we're going to meet a woman here and she's called a harlot. Um, I'm going to just say, I'm trying to give a big picture here. So we just read about it. Judgment, of, look at verse, the end of verse 1. I will come hither, I will show them to thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Now I wanna, I'm trying to give you something else by way of overview. What happened in this chapter? If you paid attention in chapter 17, what happened to her? I know we read a lot of crazy stuff. What happened to her? Did she go out on a honeymoon? Did she? She was destroyed. And it's specifically by who? In chapter, this chapter. It says 10 kings. They did not, got, they got tired of her. There's a reason, that's a, that's a prophetic thing. So they, whoever this chick is gets destroyed by these 10 nations like, we're done with this whore. That's how, that's how it works with whores. They're used and they're thrown away. 
And that's what happens to her. We're going to find out who she is. I think she's a religious organization. But she gets destroyed. But then you read chapter 18. Have you ever read chapter 18? Like, how come we're reading about this Babylon again? If you read chapter 18, you don't have to do it. Now, it talks about Babylon again, but it talks about products and, you know, commerce and everybody loving it. It's great. And there's kind of like some witchcraft in there too. Everybody loves it. And then they get all sad when God destroys it. Oh, my stuff is destroyed. I can't go there anymore. It's like, wait a minute, there's, there's two Babylons. I, 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 as you look at this passage, chapter 17, there's a Babylon religious slash political because she goes in bed with politicians. And there's another Babylon that's commercial. And you're like, wait a minute. Oh, oh, they're different. There's two aspects to this Babylon. It even says Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It even says... On the second time when, she, when the, she's mentioned chapter 18, she's destroyed, it says, reward her double. So there's two Babylons that I am gathering here from Scripture. A religious that plays, goes to bed with and then there's a commercial, kind of like one world government, one word commerce type thing. And again, we don't have it all sorted out, but we can kind of see it getting clearer. As we go along. So let's consider this religious Babylon here tonight. Um, John's introduced. Okay, so here's how you divide the chapter if you wanted to. We won't be able to do the whole chapter. The, there's three parts to the chapter. The introduction, it's to John. The image and the interpretation. The introduction, we see verse 1 and 2. We're introduced to this person. The image, that is the picture and what it looks like. The image we're getting from verses 3 to 7, and then from verses 8 to 18, we're getting the interpretation. The angel says, I'll tell you what this means. And he does to a certain extent. So let's consider his intro to this chick, this harlot. Here we go again, verse 17 to the end. Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made uh, uh, drunk with the wine of her fornication. So, so John, John, the angel says, come here, I want to show you something, the judgment of a, this great whore. He doesn't say a whore, like as if it's one lady, but he says it's something great that sitteth upon many waters. We're told later on that sitting on many waters means universal. Universal presence all around. So I'm going to show you this. And so a couple little observations of this introduction. She's, she sits on many waters. We just said that. That means she's all over the place. She's, she's, in, she's in all kinds of stuff. International presence, many locations. Israel in the Old Testament... Israel was, was called, uh, when Israel was unfaithful to God, listen to this, this is a key to interpreting the Bible. This part, I, I meant to say what I'm going to say now earlier. In the Old Testament, there came times, what is Israel? Israel's a nation, Israel's a group of worshipers, Israel had a temple, right? Okay, when Israel was unfaithful to God, in, through the prophets, I, I can show you passages Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Those prophets called her 
said, you played in the harlot. You play in the harlot. And, it, and, he's, and he was talking about religion. It happened morally to the, to the people. But religiously, you're, he said, you're playing the harlot with stocks and wood and stones. This sounds so weird, doesn't it? it, it they're saying, like, you're going off and being unfaithful to me by bowing down to these graven images and worshiping and doing these strange rituals. You're being unfaithful. You're playing the harlot. So harlot, listen to this thing. Harlotry and whoredom is symbolic of spiritual infidelity to God. Okay, that is an established thing in the Bible. So if we understand that, when it's mentioned again, harlotry, whoredom, we can think, oh, wait a minute, what was that last time? Oh, when Israel was unfaithful to God by way of idols and, and not worshiping the true God and rituals and, and immorality went along with the spiritual immorality. Also, then when we're here about a great harlot, we can already have a few, again, let the Bible interpret it. We can already have a few ideas like, so this must pertain to some kind of idolatry. This must pertain to some kind of unfaithful kind of a religion. This must pertain to some kind of departure from truth into other stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what you're seeing. He says, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great harlot that sitteth upon many waters. She's worldwide. Then notice the kings of the earth. It says, with whom the kings of the earth, look at verse 2, have committed fornication. I know some of this is, you're like, man, maybe some of the kids are like, Pastor, what is he talking about tonight? Just do your best tonight. What this is saying here is that this religious entity, this woman, is seen as in bed with politicians to get, she getting what she wants, they get what they want. And it's not right. Did you know some churches, I'll just go ahead and say this, throughout history, um, I say churches, religious organizations that kind of get cozy with government and state, never good. When our founders said, you know, we want freedom of religion, and then Thomas Jefferson said in some statement, and liberals misused this separation of church and state, they're saying let the church do its thing and not the state mess with it. That's what they're saying. And let them not be wedded together. Did you know, like, even in this country, there were certain states, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but this matters to our understanding of faith. Even in this country, did you know there were actual, like, Maryland and one of the Carolinas wanted to have, like, the Church of England, which was what, what is it in, in, when it comes to America? It's called the Episcopalian. They wanted to have state churches. Um, there may have been more Protestant type, but they wanted, that is, the religion and the state, and they're together, and you leverage tax the, you know, you put the, if they're not going to that state church, there's consequence, and the state comes down on it. What? That, 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 no, 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 no. We have the, we need to keep God's worship and the politicians separate. We don't need to, we, we, we as Christians, respect the state, we respect government, but we're not going to be like, let's marry. And you know what? Let's make a law to get it, make for, force people to come to church or force people to tithe. No, no way. And I'm not going to tell you, you can put your nose in history. Baptists were the ones who championed saying, let every religion come and no state church. Baptists, Roger Williams, John Leland, I mean, Baptists with a B were the type of people that said, no, we don't want to do that. They were in, Roseland was a, it's not this way anymore, but it was a Baptist type place. And they said, we want, 
wouldn't sign the the first the early and because not until we have freedom of Thomas Jefferson used to like to visit Baptist churches because he was with how their government worked. And so so what you have here, I'm, I'm kind of detracting a little bit, but I want you to know there's a mindset, there's a Bible mindset new, that comes from the New Testament that's seen often in Baptists. We're not the only groups, but it's seen primarily a lot of times in Baptists that says, look, state and church, and they should not marry. But there's other groups throughout history that said, let's marry them. Catholicism, Greek Orthodox, Lutheranism. I'm not saying they're like that in this state, in this country, not, but in other places, they were married to the state. And when they get married to the state, it just gets ugly. So here's this lady. So John said, lady, this woman, the angel says, look at them. I'm going to show you this. She's in bed with kings, and she's, uh, she's all over the place. She's compromising herself. And it says, all the inhabitants of the earth, look at this at the end, have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, what that means is it, it, it somehow, here's what I'll try to describe it the best I can, all the inhabitants of the earth. She's somehow, she, she fornicates with kings. She gets rich. Then she's able to perpetrate her influence upon the masses all around the world. They taste of her. They drink of her. They get drunk with the wine of her fornication. They get drink, drunk on whatever this religious group is teaching and it puts them in a stupor. They lose their sobriety and they do foolish things. That's what happens when you get drunk. He said that they get drunk at the wine of her fornication. Okay, so John's like, well, who is this? This is really weird. First century guy. All right, that's his introduction. Let's go, let's move now to the image. Now, now we get specific things that are seen here. The image. We see an image. I'll show you. There's four things of an image. We see an image of her carrier. Somebody's carrying her. We see an image of her coverings, that is her external features. We see an image of her called names. And then we see an image of her consumption. She's a drinker too. Let's just look at those tonight and then I'll try to wrap it up after that with some other practical thoughts. Okay, so he wants to show her him. Look at verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness... <clears throat> It's kind of an isolated place. What did John see? I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and seven horns. Okay, so first we see, we're not focusing on the woman. She's in the wilderness. She's sitting on this beast. The first focus is the beast, her carrier. Let's notice something about the carrier of this woman. Again, you've got to imagine your mind because these things have meaning here. This beast, sit upon the beast. She's depending on this creature, scarlet-colored beast. We later learn that this is the Antichrist in his kingdom. Scarlet color. I told you, I think I had a, the dark red tie uh, today. Scarlet is actually like a bright red from this, this word right here. Um, bright red. What does red depict? A couple of things. Fierceness. Earlier we saw the dragon. Red dragon. He's fierce. Red can depict something fierce. She's on this beast that's fierce. Antichrist is fierce. And that future kingdom of the Antichrist will be fierce. It also depicts royalty. It has governmental 
aspect to it. And it also depicts wealth, some wealth there. So that's what she's sitting on. She's sitting on this beast there with uh, scarlet colored. But, but wait a minute, the beast. What else did you see, John? All right, she's on this beast. Okay, whatever. Ooh, he's got a lot of heads. There. Yeah. Okay, what else? It says that he has full of names. Look at verse 3. Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and seven horns. Horns. Full of names of blasphemy. Okay, again, it's not a stretch for us to say this is Antichrist. In fact, you'll see later on that's part of the interpretation. The Antichrist was a great blasphemer. You know what blaspheming is? It can have kind of two aspects to blaspheme. Blaspheming is when you degrade God. You can curse God or speak of God lower than what He is. You degrade God. Or blasphemy can also be when you do something and you take attributes to yourself that only belong to God. Did you know the Antichrist is going to do both? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2 says that he opposes all that is God and he exalts himself above God. That's, what he, that's twofold blasphemy right there. That's what Antichrist does. And so here she is. She's on this beast. Okay, so this seems to be a religious organization hooked up with the beast and the anti or the Antichrist, who is also the beast. And but then it has the seven heads and ten horns. This is depicting him ruining his kingdom. All right. So it says he's got the horns, uh, seven heads and ten horns. There's a sense of world power, political power, and alliances. We will look at that at another time in the in the passage. What is her clothing like? She's a harlot. What's she clothed with? Her coverings. We looked at her carrier. What's her coverings? Here's a description. It says she's arrayed. Verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet colored. She's arrayed. Consider the fact that the idea in this whole passage is that she's very flamboyant. She's very extravagant to draw attention to herself. You're going to see a lot of, she's fancy, she's got her pearls and she's got her, she's all decked out and even her clothing it conveys high expense and wealth and royalty and authority. She is very unabashed about her craft. Um, look at me, like unashamed of her craft. And then it says, look at there, she's in those and then it says, um, uh, having gold with gold, purple and scarlet color. That's interesting. Those two specific colors mentioned. Two specific colors, purple and scarlet. That's purple and red that are characterizing her. Specific dyes that convey wealth, royalty, and authority. Gold and precious stones. Look what it says. Gold, pearls, and precious stones. She's arrayed with. So... Um, this must be a religious organization that's, that tries to come off as wealthy, come off as very fancy, and flaunt their riches and very extravagant, very extravagant. Like, like yeah, we got all that gold, all that stuff. Look at our leaders, the purple and red, and look at this. And that's what I think is coming out here in this passage. But then it says she has a cup, a cup. Specific colored mention, a golden colored cup and also the, the substance of it as if it's to men so precious, but it says to God, this cup is nothing. He doesn't like this cup. Look what it says in verse 4, having a golden cup in her hand, full of what? 
abominations and filthiness of her fornication. So whenever somebody thought, oh, look at this golden cup. Wow, a golden cup. Well, isn't that great? But when she has of God says, I, that's disgusting. That's an abomination to me. That's what it, the text says. That's how God views it. Golden cup there, and if it's a thing of disgust, let me just do a little aside here. Let me do a little aside here. So here you have this harlot. She's very fancy. The world likes her. She has a golden cup. Everybody thinks it's great. But God says, all that, that's inside is disgust. Let me just, let's just do a little aside here. Just, we got to remind ourselves this. Just because the whole world says, that's great doesn't mean it is. Jesus says, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what's in your hearts different something else. In other words, just because everybody says, this is wonderful, doesn't mean it is. What does God say about it? Just because, you know, again, like the whole idea that we, we battle this LGBT stuff, we love people who are, no matter what they are, right? We love them. We want to see all people saved, whether no matter what your sexual orientation is, we want to see you repent, be saved like anybody else. But the whole world, even if the, the whole world might say, this is wonderful, this is good, how come you're not on board? We made laws, everybody else is on board, what's wrong with you? Just because the whole world says something good doesn't mean it's right or good. We have to go with whatever God says. And so that's a thought there as I'm looking at this. But here, okay, so she's on this beast, that she's depending on the beast, the beast is doing something for her, um, and she's, she's, she's doing her thing there, and, and it says that uh, she's arrayed, she's unabashedly attired, just like, look at me and have no shame for all the wealth that I've gotten from my compromising. No shame, she says, or her, her appearance says. But then it's her called names. Let her see her called names. Her forehead, it says mystery. Look at verse 5. Mystery Babylon, the great. Hmm. This is a whole, this is loaded name here. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Boy, that's a big, right there. Let's talk about Babylon for a minute. The original Babel, Genesis 11, right? What happened there? Genesis 11, what happened? You know, they got off the ark earlier and everybody's supposed to scatter, go and uh, multiply and have dominion over the earth. And what happened? A lot of them said, nah, we're going to hang out here. We're going to just kind of coalesce together. We're going to see what humanity can do when we together. There's nothing we can't do. It's kind of the very humanistic mentality. We know what God said, but we're going to do this. And Nimrod, a mighty hunter, was probably uh, stirring up this thing. He may have been a kind of a type of antichrist in that sense of just, yeah, let's build this city. And actually, one of his cities was Babel. Help build Babel. They're going to, we're going to build this tower, and we're basically ignoring God. We're just going to unite. And, and God says, you know, I'm going to go down there and just kind of confuse them all, and let's going to split them up. And that's how the languages came, and consequently, eventually, our racial distinctions came because of that. So, um, but Babel, here's the thing about Babel. Babel was the first place of organized religion against God. Now, that's clear in the Bible. Babylon is the first place of... Now, Cain had a false idea about God. He thought he could merit with God, okay? Uh, that's a false... But organized rebellion against God right there. And God says that. Now, the Bible says that there's other people who did studies and history of the 
of other things that went on, the worship of the son and the mother-child worship. And I'm not going to get into all that because I have to dig so much into history. I don't want to just only preach history. I'm trying to stay close to the Bible tonight. But there was a beginning of a rebellion against God, a, re a rebellious religion. So here you have mystery Babylon. By the way, years later, you have a... So that was Babel. Years later, you have Babylon, the developing country, the world power with Nebuchadnezzar. That was an anti-God pagan place, even though I think Nebuchadnezzar got saved later. That was an anti-God pagan place. Godless things being done there. Uh, and godless ceremonies and, and things like that. And so here we like, okay, so in the future, I know you're like, man, this is a lot of stuff tonight. Here you have this woman. She's called Mystery Babylon. In other words, there's still this element of this rebellious religion against God. This rebellious religion against God. The mother of harlots. Wow. The mother of harlots. That means a harlot, again, will sell themselves for gain. So she's also teaching her Groups to sell themselves for gain, do anything to get rich. And then it says this. She is the mother. Look at verse 5. Whoever this woman is, this religious, rebellious entity is, she's called Mystery Babylon. And she said, and it says that she is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Abominations. That is, she produces and protects so many abominable, thing, abominable things. So many fornicators, so many sodomizers, so many adulterers, so many of them. And she produces them, she protects them. I'm going to mother them. And I'm going to guard them and keep them safe. That's who she is. And then this last uh, observation here, here, she was not only had a carrier, a covering, and called names, but look at her consumption. So this is, look at verse 6. I saw the woman, drunken, with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Admiration, again, it means like, is this? What is she? She's drunken. So John sees this. Whoa. And John was like, what is it? Again, John's first century. There wasn't a lot of, okay, what major alternate Christian religion, any alternate religion was there? I mean, there's Jews and stuff. And he's like, what is this? It's a scene, a forward picture. She's drunk with the, who would do that to Christians and kill them, be drunk on their blood? In other words, kill Christians like, I like this. She's sloshed on it. We're going to kill them there. And so this is, this is a, a horrible thing. She's drunk with the blood. She had a part in partaking and draining the blood out of life of men and women of God. She's known for killing Christians. John ponders this. At this point, we're going to we'll try to wind this down. <clears throat> um, you know, I'll give a few pastoral things. At this point, does anybody get a feel for what this might be? What? Rome, the Vatican. Now, look, I, I try to be as objective as I can when I'm going to the Bible. I used, 
there was a time where I'm like, oh, I think it's Rome. And then I was like, oh, maybe it's not. I just need to study other people. What are people? And then I went back and I'm like, man, it's hard to not see Rome there. The Vatican in particular. Bright red and purple. Gold and flamboyant. And you know what the word Catholic means? Universal. Universal. They're all over the place. They have a, is there not like a, some kind of embassy or something in every? Look at the last verse of the chapter. Look at verse, this, this is a clincher for me. There's more, we could do more, but this is a big clincher. The verse 18, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. If you were John 2,000 years ago and you heard that stated, what would the, your best guess would be? Rome. And even, knowing, even if you knew the Bible, you hadn't read one secular book of history ever in your life and you only read the Bible, you would have enough sense to know whenever this stuff was, Rome was in power. And John hears, okay, so this crazy woman, what's going on with this? If I have this headed beast, what, okay, yeah, she's all over the place. It's that great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. The idea is like Rome was definitely the world power had sway over all the kings of the earth. And I think there's going to be a... Another ask, so, so right now it's the Vatican has sway with kings for years and presidents. For, it seems like every American president would eventually meet with the Pope, at least in the last 40 years, even if they're just kind of like, you know, behind the scenes, they're like, I don't believe that. They would still do it. And look, I'm going to just go ahead and clarify some things because I know I just opened up a can there. Um, this is not saying Catholics do bad things. This is not to say that. Man, I got, you know, there's a lot of, one of our doctors, I love it. They're great. That's great. They're great, helpful, pro-life, our pedi um, pediatrician and gynecologist and all that. But I'm saying this is kind of, this is indicting directly at the Vatican. And it seems like, here's my, here's where I'm at on this. If this is not the Catholic Church right here, then whatever the Catholic Church is now looks like her daughter. And I don't know where the mother is. Did you get that? Because whoever she is, she has daughters. And if, you're, if we look at the Catholic Church and we compare, we haven't compared all the points of comparison here. If we look at the Catholic Church like, man, if it's not her there, and the Catholic Church must, the Vatican in particular, must be the daughter of this, but I think it's the mother. So this is, this is, this is amazing here. And we'll, all right, so let's do this. All right, here's the deal. I'm trying to find a way to wrap this up in a pastoral way. All right, false church, true church. Let's just say this. For us, we are Royal View Baptist Church. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. But let's remember as we progress in our days ahead, ahead as we see different kinds of crazy types of Christianity and, and, and everything. Let's remember true Christianity and false Christianity contrast. True Christianity, we want to be that, is like a bride. Her affections are on a man to come. False Christianity, listen to this, listen to this, is like a harlot. Her affections are on what all the other men around her want. Do you know a lot of the crazy ecumenical type churches, you know what they're focused on? What do you like? What do you like? What do you want? What do you want? They care about what all the men, what men want in a church. True Christianity, a true church, it ain't perfect. What does our bridegroom want? What does he want? That's a true Christianity. We want to be that kind of bride. What does Jesus say about it? 
All right, that's what we want to be because this is definitely a harlot we meet here. True Christianity, number two, goes everywhere with its message unchanged. False Christianity has a message, but just adjust it and change it and bring in some of the, what are your strange superstitions? We can work that into our doctrine too. Did you know there's some churches and even Catholicism find, you know, Catholicism's a little different taste in Dominican Republic as it is in Rome, as it is in Africa, as it, it has, you know what, they'll, they'll, they'll envelop the crazy pagan superstitions and work them in and bring it back out and have a taste of Catholicism. So, true Christianity keeps its message the same, it's timeless. A false Christianity, which can go beyond, we're not trying to just pick on Catholics, go beyond that, adapts and changes and as a chameleon. All right. Okay. Uh, so many other points. How about this? Um, number three, we'll close on this, these points, these pastoral points. Let's remember as a church that true Christianity, number three, is less concerned about costly apparel and costly things and more concerned about clothing people with the righteousness of Christ. Listen, I would love to have a nice, you know, nice, good quality church building and church stuff. But I think there comes a point where like, this is too much. This is too elaborate. We just, it's too fancy. Even, I, I'm really, you know, even when we have church services, we need to have things decently in order and all that and have nice stuff. I like that. But I don't want to get too overly formal, too fancy, too like that. And also, also the idea of we don't want to be materialistic in that sense. And we, we don't want to be... We want to be more concerned about clothing people with the righteousness of Jesus Christ than just costly apparel. We want to be more concerned about eternal riches, heavenly riches, than earthly riches. It so happens that probably the American Protestant church, even Baptist church, is probably pretty wealthy in this country. But so what? That doesn't mean anything. What matters is how much spiritual power do we have? Probably not as much as some of the groups in Philippines or China that nobody knows about. True Christianity is, is more concerned with eternal riches, clothing people with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. False Christianity, listen to this, false Christianity relentlessly pursues earthly wealth over spiritual health. Sometimes people go, they are in it for the money. They are in it for the luxury. And we're just going to have to wind this down. There's so much more. But this is, this is like, so John sees this. He sees this, this massive, unfaithful entity that has been unfaithful to God, and he sees it hooking up with this world leader and causing a lot of problems. And the world leader and the ten kings like, we're done with you. They kill her. And that's what happens in the future. So for us as a church, let's remember it's okay that we it's okay that we don't seem mainstream. You know what I'm saying? I mean, as far as like um, what all the other religions doing, we don't want to be mean, we don't want to be, you know, immoral, we don't want to be illegal, we don't want to be thefts, we don't want, you know, be cheating and we don't want to have crimes in, in churches or our type of churches. We don't have stuff like that. But we don't want to have, but we also don't want to be like, whatever everybody else is doing, we're going to do. We're going to be his bride. 
We want to follow Him. We want to be a faithful, not a harlot. We want to be faithful to Jesus. And that means each of us need to be faithful to Jesus so that we're all faithful to Jesus in our beliefs, in our practices, in our worship. And that, you know, there's a right way to worship. There's a wrong way to worship. There's a right uh, belief. There's a wrong belief. There's um, one person I should constantly adore and love above all. And there's many more that I just need to keep down here. Sometimes we're, we might be in a Baptist church and be unfaithful to the Lord because we love all kinds of other things and Jesus is just kind of down here. So let's just conclude with the thought that we need to be a faithful bride to the Lord as a church and as individuals. We'll probe into this next week. I do want to just do my responsibility and bring, lead us through this. We need to be aware of